Good morning, and happy belated Thanksgiving as I stand here before you this morning, having stood here, believe it or not, for my first time 26 years ago. Yeah, uh, my heart is overflowing with thanksgiving to the Lord, especially as I recall how God used this church in my life. As I think about my wife, as I think about my children, about my grandson and my grandchild that's to come, as I think about the ministry that I serve in, believe it or not, all of it traces its roots back to this church and to the founding pastor of this church, Pastor Gary. That's right. Because it was through Pastor Gary meeting Ray Comfort in Hawaii many years ago, while they were both there suffering for the Lord, that Gary heard Ray share a very important message called Hell's Best Kept Secret, and then sometime after that was moved to invite Ray to move his ministry here to the United States of America. And after that happened, I came to learn about Ray and his ministry, and then I ended up uh, inviting Ray to speak at the church where I pastored, and uh, his daughter came on that day, took one look at me, dropped to her knee and proposed, and here I am. (laughs) Don't tell her I said that. So my heart is overflowing with thanks to the Lord this morning for this church, for Pastor Gary, and for all that God has done and is now doing through living waters all around the world. It's truly a joy uh, that's beyond description. And I guess now that Thanksgiving is over, we can safely talk about Christmas, lest the Thanksgiving police parachute down and threaten our lives, right? It's like jingle bells, not until Thanksgiving's over, right, you know? So uh, yeah, and as I stand here, I'm reminded of the fact that, as some of you know, I grew up in Lebanon and we had uh, many of the same holidays there that we have here, but they were quite a bit different. We had, for example, Christmas, but uh, our Christmas was, was, was different in a lot of ways. We had Christmas trees like they have here, but ours weren't the nice fluffy Douglas firs with nice lights and ornaments on them. It was basically a twig with some parsley pasted to it maybe a few strands of yarn, and we had Santa like they have here, but our Santa had some serious issues. He didn't want cookies and milk on Christmas Eve. He wanted baklava and a hookah. And if you were bad, he didn't leave you a lump of coal in your stocking. He left you a grenade. Yeah, it wasn't ho, ho, ho. It was more like ha, ha, ha. So when my wife and I got married, we're like, you know what? We're not doing this Santa thing in our house. It's going to be all about Jesus. And so our poor kids, you know, they knew nothing really about Santa Claus. One time when uh, we were at the mall and it was around Christmas time, Santa was there, of course, doing the picture thing with the kids. And we're walking around. My four-year-old son sees him and he points and he goes, Dad, look, it's Moses. (laughs) I thought, yeah, my son's biblical. (laughs) And so anyhow, friends, uh, look, even though Thanksgiving is over, my heart's greatest longing for us this morning is that we would be a people who continue to overflow with thanks to the Lord. It's really sad that we dedicate just one day to that. My heart's yearning is that we become a people of thanksgiving all the time, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. So please join me in prayer as we open God's word together. Father, thank you for the sweetness of your word. Thank you for the saints who are here today saying, Lord, I want to know you more, I wanna love you deeper, I want to live for your glory with greater passion than ever before. I pray, Lord, you would meet us here. 
I pray that you would help us to be a people who recognize that we are here only because of you, because of the cross, because of what you've done. And so help us to uh, grasp your word, its truth, its power, and its fullness, and allow us to be transformed by it. And so we thank you. We commit this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Some time ago, I was driving back from a trip to Arizona with a dear friend of mine. And as we were pleasantly driving down the open road with black tar beneath our tires, blue sky overhead, and the beautiful desert landscape flying by our windows, my friend looked over at me and sincerely asked me, so what is happening in your life? And instantly and unexpectedly, because I hadn't thought about it concretely, something that had been quietly simmering inside of me for a long time and that I was very disturbed about and unhappy about regarding my own life quickly rose to the surface and suddenly exploded in a massive volcanic, volcanic eruption. And I looked at my friend and I said, I am a chronic complainer and I am sick and tired of it. And by the way, friends, if there's ever a complaint that's a legitimate complaint, it's the complaint that has you complaining that you're a complainer. And my friend looks over at me and he says, me too. You mean I'm not the only one? And this led us into a multi-hour conversation about what chronic complainers we are. Friends, you don't know me well this morning, but if you knew me well and you spent enough time with me, you would recognize that I complain about just about everything. I complain about the weather, I complain about traffic, I complain about late flights, I complain about delayed shipments, I complain about the IRS, which may be a legitimate complaint. I complain about long lines, I complain about slow people, I complain about bad service, I complain about high gas prices, I complain about bad government, I complain about physical ailments, I even, believe it or not, complain about people who complain. And as my friend and I began to talk about this and recognize what wretched sinners we are in the compartment of complaining, our hearts were radically radically convicted. And as we began to near my home and my friend was getting ready to drop me off, I said, man, I'm so convicted about this, but I've been so convicted about so many things over the course of my lifetime, and yet oftentimes, after a while, I end up forgetting about what I was convicted about. I'm sure you can relate to that. Where God takes his finger and puts it on something in our lives and, and in our heart and we get gung-ho and we get stirred up and we become determined that things are going to change and then all of a sudden life happens, right? Busyness and difficulties and struggles and battles and, and before we know it, it's not even a distant memory anymore. It's completely forgotten. And so I said, man, I want to change this. I don't want to be this kind of person. 
I don't want to be a, a person who murmurs and grumbles and complains. I want to be a man who walks in gratitude and in contentment because what we end up recognizing is that with murmuring and grumbling and complaining, what we're really demonstrating is that we are people who are discontent and who are not walking in the contentment that God's word calls us to walk in. And so as we got to my house, I got out of the car and I walked into the house and I looked at my family I said, guys, let's sit down and talk here. We have a collective problem as a family. We complain uh, endlessly. We're not walking in the kind of contentment that the Lord wants us to walk in, and this needs to change. And so the first thing I did was I ordered a book that my friend had told me about on our drive about discontentment. And it's a book called The Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. And then after talking with my family, I determined that we were going to establish a complaining jar for the Zwayne household. This was going to be a jar in which we were going to take little pieces of paper and drop them in every time we either caught ourselves complaining or we caught one another complaining. And boy, did my kids get excited about this. I mean, it's as if though Christmas came early that year, you know? I mean, they were pulling out little pieces of paper, cutting them up, and they created a legend with all of our names and the different colors of paper corresponding to our names, and man, they loved this complaining thing. And so we started off. Day one, boy, the papers were filling in. Day two, day three. By the end of that week, if paper could break jars, this jar would have burst into a thousand pieces. And who do you think when the papers were added up was the top complainer in the home? Daddy dearest, chief complainer. And it was convicting because oftentimes if you're anything like me, as you go through life, you find yourself doing things without realizing you're even doing them. They become commonplace. They become normal. In fact, if someone were to be asked, who is this person? Oftentimes, certain things about the way that we live could become the banner over our lives. It, they could become the defining feature about us. And that's where I found myself in the complaining department, in the discontentment department. And so I launched into deep study on this topic, and I began to seek the Lord on it. And here were a couple of disturbing quotes that I found in this book that I purchased the Art of Divine Contentment by Thomas Watson. He said, discontent is a fretting temper which dries the brains, wastes the spirits, corrodes and eats out the comfort of life. Discontentment makes a man not enjoy what he does possess. A drop or two of vinegar will sour a whole glass of wine. Just so, let a man have the affluence and all worldly comforts, a drop or two of discontent will embitter and poison all. How true that is. You can be blessed in the most indescribable ways, and yet you begin to introduce discontentment into the equation, and suddenly the things that you have, as we'll talk about in a moment, don't even really mean much to you anymore. He went on to say, murmuring is no better than mutiny in the heart. It is a rising up against God. When the sea is rough and unquiet, it casts forth nothing but foam. Just so when the heart is discontent, it casts forth the foam of murmuring, anger, and impatience. Murmuring is nothing else but the scum which boils off from a discontented heart. Wow. 
There's a famous preacher who says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. And this, my brothers and sisters, is one of those ouch moments for me. And perhaps this morning, as I already began to speak on this topic, it's one of those moments for you. Don't fear the ouch moments in life, by the way. They're a gift from the Lord. Just like the sense of pain keeps us from harming ourselves further as we feel ourselves touching a hot or a sharp object and that deters us or, or alerts us to something going on in our body. When we feel spiritual pain, it's usually the Lord bringing about conviction so he can bring about good change in our lives. And as Thomas Watson said here, yeah, when we see this scum that is building up in our hearts through murmuring, it is the evidence of a discontented heart. And in reality, the heart of the problem, as it's been said, is the problem of the heart. And Jesus gave us indication of this, didn't he? When he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The words that we utter are an indicator of what's going on inside of us internally at that very center of who we truly are as people. E.C. Weiler wrote the following. He said, some time ago, there appeared in a newspaper a cartoon showing two fields divided by a fence. Both fields were about the same size, and each had plenty of the same kind of grass, green and lush. In each field, there was a mule, and each mule had his head through the fence, eating grass from the other mule's pasture. All around each mule in his own field was plenty of grass, yet the grass in the other field seemed greener or fresher, although it was harder to get. And in the process, the mules were caught in the wires and were unable to extricate themselves. The cartoonist put just one word at the bottom of the picture, this content. What an apt picture that is. We look at the pasture in our own lives and as green as it might be, the one next door always looks greener. That person's circumstances, that person's possessions, that person's status in life, that person's job is a lot better than ours. Even maybe that person's spiritual growth and development and we want to go over there and graze in those pastures when God has put us in the very pasture that we ourselves are in, not by way of looking and being encouraged that maybe I need to grow here or there, or, or perhaps God wants to lead me in this direction or that direction as we see good things in other people's lives, but, it, but it's, it's different than that. It's this root of, of, of this unsettled discontentment, not recognizing what it is that God has lavished our lives with. And so as you can imagine, this whole experience got me thinking and I began to realize, you know, while the grass might look greener in the other pasture, you can be assured, as it's been said, that the water bill may be a whole lot higher. And it's especially higher when we are attempting again to create for ourselves what God has created for someone else in accordance with his providence and his timing and his divine will for them. And so this led me to God's word, and I want to take a look at this topic with you in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 10. <clears throat> but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full 
and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Here you go again, the blessed and privileged and esteemed and highly elevated Apostle Paul. Lecturing us poor, lowly, common folks about what it means to be content in all things. Paul, what do you know about discontentment? As you sit there in your high apostolic ivory tower, looking down your nose at us who weren't as you were favored by God and chosen to become a apostle of the faith, to have written the epistles that billions of people have read over the course of time in the book that has been printed more than any other book in the history of the universe. You who were anointed with power to heal people and to do indescribable miracles and to speak with powerful anointing by God, one who will forever be favored into all of eternity as an apostle of Christ. What do you know about the discontent life or about struggles or difficulties or battles that we as people typically face? Ray Comfort often talks about his father who, when he was young, would often physically strike him and his siblings who would on many occasions just take off and leave him and his siblings and his mom at home alone, who he one day saw kill a wild animal with his bare hands. But then he gives a little more information. His dad would physically strike them because he would lovingly discipline them when they disobeyed because he cared for them and wanted to see them nurtured and brought up in the right way. He would often take off and leave them because he would go to work every day to work hard and provide for his family and take care of them. He watched him kill a bare animal with his own hands because one day they were driving down the street and a bird flew into the grill and it was suffering on the ground and so he mercifully put it out of its misery. See, that's called paradigm shift. What you envisioned in your mind in one second as a crazy monster suddenly became a wonderful, humane father and citizen. Friends, it's important for us to understand who Paul the Apostle was for us to understand what he meant when he said he had learned to be content in all things. In 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 11, he said, for I think that God has displayed us the apostles last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but we are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Did you know that about Paul and the apostles? Maybe you envision them in that frozen in time stained glass that we often see in churches, right, with a halo around their head shining brightly, but the apostles in the early church as Christianity was established and was seen as a scourge and as a distasteful, blasphemous religion, according to Judaism and even the pagan religions of that time, brought upon the believers of that time, and especially the leaders of the church, great persecution and difficulty and trial. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 22 to 28, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. 
and labors more abundant and stripes above measure and prisons more frequently and deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I have been in the deep in journeys often and perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils of my own countrymen and perils of the Gentiles and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, and fastings often, and cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Doesn't that make you feel good about your life? <laughs> like, really? When was the last time you were naked and homeless? When was the last time you were bobbing up and down in the middle of an ocean like a cork, being beaten by rods, being stoned? Not with marijuana, but with stones. This is the man who said, I have learned, and it moves me emotionally when I think about what he suffered for the sake of Christ. This is the man who said, I have learned to be content in all things. Maybe that gives you a different perspective on his words. And look at his attitude, brothers and sisters. Listen to what he said. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He says, we are hard pressed on every side yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. You see that attitude? He's, he's listing out all of the negative things that they were experiencing as believers in the early church. And he says, look, even though we are this, we're that. Even though we're hard-pressed on every side, hey, hey, we're not crushed. Even though we're perplexed, yeah, we're not in despair. Even though we're persecuted, we're not forsaken. Even though we're struck down, we're not destroyed. Amen. And we carry about with us always the life of Jesus. This is the same man who was in a Roman prison when he wrote this epistle. He was writing from prison when he said he learned to be content in all things. Listen to what he said earlier in this epistle that showed his attitude of contentment further. He said in verses 12 through 18 of chapter two of Philippians, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, and yes, will rejoice. Did you see that? Instead of, of being so distraught and disheartened by his circumstances as he's imprisoned, by the way, again, He's saying, I'm so happy that my chains are causing other believers to become bolder and that the gospel is going out further, even by those who wish to preach the gospel to 
cause me harm, I still rejoice in the Lord. This is a man who, though he was in prison, was able to set his mind elsewhere. And that's why he was able to say in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, he could be in prison, but because he set his mind on the things above, where Christ is, where he's seated in the heavenlies, in the eternal realm, he was able in time and space to be a man of contentment and praise toward the Lord because he understood the value of the eternal against the fading temporal. You know, this wasn't Paul's first time in prison, as I mentioned. Y'all remember what happened in Acts chapter 16 when he was imprisoned in Philippi, again, the city that he was writing to here in his epistle. In Acts 16, 23 through 25, it says, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Listen. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, listen, and the prisoners were listening to them. I mean, how beautiful is this? I'd be sucking my thumb in the corner, crying like a baby, and here Paul and Silas, as they're in chained, having been beaten, are worshiping and praising God and lifting up their voices in prayer, and the prisoners around them were listening. One writer tells of two birds and how they acted when caught and put into a cage. One, a starling, flew violently against the wire walls of its prison in unavailing efforts to escape, only battering and bruising its own wings. The other bird, a canary, perched itself on the bar and began to pour forth bursts of sweet song from its little throat. We know which bird was the wiser and the happier. And then the author went on to say, some people are like that starling. When they are in any trouble, they chafe and fret and complain and give way to wretchedness. The result is they only hurt themselves, make themselves more miserable, and do not in any sense lessen their trouble. It is wiser always as well as more pleasing to God for us to bear our trials patiently, singing songs of faith and love rather than crying out, in rebellion and discontentment. I kid you not, I was sharing this message some time ago in a church in Long Beach, and I read this illustration here about birds in a cage, and I kept hearing this like kind of pecking noise, and I looked down, there's a lady sitting in the sanctuary with a bird in a cage. <laughs> I'm like, what? It was a therapy bird. I'm like, hey, Tweety, <laughs> what in the world? Anyhow, the things that happen in life, and you know, I'll tell you, um, discontentment, my brothers and sisters, is like that bird in a cage, isn't it? Fretting and flying, and all that ends up happening as we bang against the bars of that cage is we harm ourselves. We waste precious time, all the while forgetting that there are people all around us listening and watching. 
Those that don't know Christ, that don't have hope, that don't understand the value and the reality and the greatness of eternity and the sweetness of the God that we know and serve, the one who radically revolutionized and transformed our lives. So what exactly is contentment then and how do we define it so that we can live it out in our lives? Adrian Rogers aptly defined contentment this way. He said, contentment is an inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace in spite of outward circumstances. An inner sufficiency that keeps us at peace despite outward circumstances. I saw a perfect illustration of this some time ago when I was reading an article online and it showed a man who was in the midst of Hurricane Matthew and he was sitting on the roof of a Coast Guard station in the middle of the ocean, 30 miles off of North Carolina, on a lawn chair with his shirt off, his hands behind his back, sunglasses on, as he was sunbathing. And I thought, wow, what a perfect picture that is of contentment. Despite the outward circumstances, there's this inner disposition that keeps you at peace in the midst of the storm. He understood the strength of that tower. He, he knew that it had weathered many storms over the course of years, and he was demonstrating his inward peace by his outward gesture of saying, oh, I can sit out here, lie with my hands behind my back, and bathe in the sun. Friends, that's what contentment is. A.W. Pink drilled down deeper. He said, contentment then is the product of a heart resting in God. It is the soul's enjoyment of that peace that passes all understanding. It is the outcome of my will being brought into subjection to the divine will. It is a blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. What a great definition that is. That's right, it's a, it's, it's a heart resting in God. It's the soul's enjoyment of that peace that passes all understanding, why? Because it's rooted in the knowledge that God does all things well. That God is in control of our lives. Not just that, but that God loves us. We understand his nature, his heart. We understand his character. We understand that he has said this will one day all pass. What was it that enabled Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we typically call them by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What enabled them when they stood before that great King Nebuchadnezzar and his 90-foot-high golden statue as it sparkled and shimmered in the light and, and everyone collapsed to their faces and began to worship it when the music began to play? What enabled those three Hebrew youth to stay standing there and then to look at that king when he threatened them with that burning, burning fiery furnace and to say to him, we have no need to answer you concerning this matter, O king. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but if not, we still won't bow. What enabled them to do that? It's because they understood the, the power of their God. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. But then they also understood their providence of their God. But even if not, we still won't bow. God may have a purpose we don't understand. We'll stay loyal to him. But why is that? It's because they understood the person of their God. They knew his heart. Our God whom we serve. And friends, when we know God, when we know his heart, when we understand his care for us, if he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us, gave him freely gave him up for us all, how will he not freely with him give us all things? He paid the highest price ever paid in the history of the universe to redeem our souls. And will he not care enough for us to 
work in the midst of the difficult circumstances of life, even though we don't understand them, providing for us in more abundant ways than we recognize, and the operative word is recognized because we grow immune to all that God has given us. We forget its value and its significance. We forget that he's in the midst of the storm with us. But how is it possible to be content in the midst of hard circumstances and difficulty and challenge and struggle and trial? Well, Paul highlights that for us here in our text. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, unfortunately, is one of those verses that's oftentimes misused. It's misunderstood. It's taken out of its context. Sure, generally speaking, we know in life that that God must give us the strength for us to do anything, but in the context of this verse, it's Paul talking about learning how to be content and having a lot and having nothing in, in every circumstance in life. He ties it in with this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That same Christ who was in the boat with his disciples as a storm was raging and he was asleep on the pillow. (laughs) What a beautiful picture that is of the posture of our God in the midst of the storms of life. And Jesus looks at the disciples, oh, you have little faith, peace, be still. And it all calmed. (laughs) Paul understood that Christ was the source of being able to be a people who walk in discontent and contentment and set aside discontentment and grumbling and murmuring and complaining. Paul knew that Christ was always with him, that he is a solution to covetousness or desiring in a demanding and ungrateful and sinful way something other than what we have, whether it's material or circumstantial. And let me say here that it's okay for us as Christians to be in a difficult circumstance or situation, whether it's financial or whether it's circumstantial or whether it's physical. It's okay for us to desire change in that, to cry out to God, to to help bring us out of it. We see examples of that throughout the word. But discontentment goes beyond that. It's an unwillingness to, as Pink mentioned, rest in the Lord and in his divine will. It's an unwillingness to give thanks to God even though circumstances are tough. It's an unwillingness to say, Lord, I will bow my knee to you and you only no matter what. Unfortunately, it's the kind of attitude that puts conditions on God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. And unless you change this, then I'm out of here. But a true contentedness in the Lord is one that rests in Jesus and recognizes he's with us in the midst of every circumstance. You're all familiar with the very popular verse, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the verse that we oftentimes see in Christian bookstores on those ornate home decorative items. It's sometimes a verse that we may even see tattooed on people's bodies. It's a verse we often hear quoted by people who are trying to encourage others. But don't forget the first part of that same verse. Yes, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but listen to what he said in the beginning of Hebrews 13, 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Covetousness is solved by the knowledge that no matter what, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And in having Christ, we have all things, and therefore our contentment can be unconditional. 
we can be content with such things as we have because he is always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us because that's been, as it's been said, brothers and sisters, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I would say that everything minus Jesus equals nothing. When we have him whom to have life is life eternal, we understand and recognize that truly we have all that we really need. Paul's knowledge that he has the fullness of Christ now and that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord is what allowed him to be able in the midst of his imprisonment, having gone through all of the harsh trials that I read to you, to be able to say, I've learned to be content. Notice he learned to be content. It's through those difficult circumstances that the Lord often helps us to recognize that we really have nothing but him in life. As we put our hope in all these different things and we recognize how, how they so quickly fade, how they pass away with the wind, we start to recognize that we have nothing but Christ. When my mom passed away when I was 18 years old, that she suffered so miserably through cancer. She would beg me to put her out of her misery because of how intense the pain was. I'll never forget, after she passed, the recognition that I can't hold on to anything in this life. The person that I treasured most above all else was suddenly taken away from me, and I learned that truly all I have in life is Christ. And then he walked me back through that and helped me to recognize that it was through her pain that he opened her eyes to the gospel, and she came to Christ before she passed away. I think Johnny Erickson Tata put it well. She said, for me, true contentment on earth means asking less of this life because more is coming in the next. Godly contentment is great gain, heavenly gain, because God has created the appetites in your heart. It stands to reason that he must be the consummation of that hunger. Yes, heaven will galvanize your heart if you focus your faith, not on a place of glittery mansions, but on a person, Jesus, who makes heaven a home. That's nice, Johnny Erickson Tata. Who in the world are you anyway? Hmm. Johnny Erickson Tata was a young lady who loved life, extremely active, full of adventure and enthusiasm for life until one day when she and her family were on vacation at the Chesapeake Bay and she dove in and hit her head on the bottom of that body of water and became a quadriplegic. And she was miserable and despaired of life and was suicidal until one day the Lord opened her eyes and she recognized his goodness and his faithfulness and his love. She cried out to him and he transformed her life. And Johnny Eric Santada, whose name is extremely famous now, has a ministry that is impacting people all around the world. She didn't let that stop her. She's become an author and a speaker. She has a multi-million dollar ministry that's helping disabled people all around the world. She is an artist who paints with a toothbrush between her teeth. She, she is a, a woman who has sung a song that was nominated for an Academy Award. She could have given up. She could have murmured and complained and grumbled, God, why me? Why this? But she determined to move on. Some of you have heard of Nick Vujicic. No arms and no legs born that way. 
And he was also disheartened and depressed until the Lord opened his eyes and he recognized what he had in Christ who can never be taken away from him. And he went on now to impact the world. I mean, gone on some of the biggest talk shows and inspired people from continent to continent. He came and visited with us not long ago. His life had been radically impacted by Ray when he was in Australia and he had become a youth pastor. And now he's impacting the world. He's married, he has four children and, and a worldwide ministry. Yes, even people with the most difficult of circumstances can demonstrate contentment in the Lord. Why? Because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm sure you've all read the book of Esther and you're familiar with the story of Haman, who was a wicked man that had been elevated to prominence. He was pretty much the second in command in the kingdom and there was a godly Jew named Mordecai that Haman detested because even though the king had commanded everyone to bow before Mordecai, Haman being, uh, before Haman, Mordecai being a godly Jew would not do it. And this just riled Haman up to the point to where he had convinced the king to send out a decree to kill all of the Jews in the entire empire. Of course, neither the king nor Haman knew that Esther, who became the king's wife, who was the niece of Mordecai, again, unbeknownst to anyone, was a Jew. And so Esther learned of this from Mordecai, and she wanted to bring this to the attention of the king and bust Haman, and so she held a banquet and, and invited Haman, and he came, and then at that banquet, she said, hey, I'm gonna have another banquet, and invited him again, and so Haman was extremely excited that he had been invited by the queen to two banquets, and we pick it up in Esther 5, 9 through 13, and says, so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Listen. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. This, my brothers and sisters, is the perfect illustration of what discontentment does in the heart of God's people. This was not a, a man of God by any means, but he gave us an illustration of what we can often do as we walk in the ways of the ungodly. This guy brought his wife, brought his friends, sat them down, made them his audience, and then he began to elaborate to them all the blessings that were in his life. He talked about his great riches, his financial success. He talked about the multitude of his children, his familial success. He talked about how in everything the king had promoted him and advanced him above the officials, his professional success. And then he talked to them about how the queen had invited only him and the king twice, his social success. Sometimes when we hear 
young children murmur and complain and grumble about all the things that are going wrong in their life, we think, oh, they just really don't understand. This man demonstrated that he understood because he brought an audience and he elaborated to them all these things. And then in the face of all that, he said, but all of this avails me nothing. All of this means nothing to me. Why? Because I cannot have that one thing that I really, really want. That's what discontentment is like. We live in the greatest nation on the face of the earth. I came from Lebanon in 1980 at the age of four and a half. And let me tell you, I understand the blessings of this nation. I've been to 35 countries around the world. And every time I come back, I feel like kissing the ground. We live in one of the greatest states in the country, if not the greatest, definitely the most populated, one of the largest economies in the world. We live in one of the most coveted counties in the United States, whether like my city, county, Orange County, or, or LA County. We, we, we have the most powerful military. We're abounding with food. You go to the supermarkets and food is, is just falling off of the shelves. We have homes. We have roofs over our heads. We have running water. We have, I mean, more things than I can even describe. And oftentimes we find ourselves just forgetting what we have. We find ourselves, in essence, friends, complaining about the inconveniences in our luxuries. Oh, man, this car is so old. Car? Oh, this air conditioning just doesn't blow like it used to. Air conditioning? Really? We complain about the internet being too slow. We complain about our computers not working well enough. We complain about our smartphones kind of stalling. Friends, do you understand the luxuries that we have in all of these things? And on top of all of that, heaven too. And a savior who will never, ever forsake us. The true key to contentment is recognizing what we should have in place of what we do have. And if we understand our sinfulness before a holy God and his holiness and what scripture tells us about those who don't know Christ, we recognize, my dear friends, that what we truly deserve at this very moment in time is to be in hell, engulfed in its eternal flames of fire. And we're not. Which means what? Which means every circumstance in life is in reality an undeserved blessing. It's an undeserved blessing. And suddenly you start to recognize that everything is transformed, right? Because as you're stuck on the 91, <laughs> and by the way, when Legion left the, the swine that Jesus cast them into, I believe they came and hovered over the 91 freeway until it was completed and then <laughs> possessed it, right? But when you're on the 91 freeway, and I used to live in Riverside, I used to have to drive it from here in Bellflower where our ministry is all the way there and back, right? It was like an 82 mile round trip every day. Man, I'm getting stressed just saying it now. But as you're stuck in traffic and it's barely moving and you're about to lose your mind, just pause and say, wow, instead of this, I should be engulfed in the eternal flames of hell. Thank you, Lord. It'll lead to a lot of prayer and thanksgiving on the 91 freeway. Brothers and sisters, God has blessed us abundantly and that's how we're able to, as Ephesians 5.20 tells us, give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? 
because we deserve nothing less painful than hell and anything less painful than hell is an undeserved blessing. And on top of that, God promises to work in and through our circumstances for his glory. And when we take our last breath on earth, we take our first breath in heaven forever. That changes everything. I love what H.B. Charles Jr. posted recently on Instagram. He said, grateful for early early wake-ups equals children to love. House to clean equals safe place to live. Laundry equals clothes to wear. Dishes to wash equals food to eat. Crumbs under the table equals family meals. Grocery shopping equals money to provide for us. Toilets to clean equals indoor plumbing. Lots of noise equals people in my life. Endless questions about homework equals kids' brains growing. Sore and tired equals I'm still alive. (laughs) This is the heart that God wants us as his people to have. He wants us to be a people who wake up and recognize that God is calling us to live with gratitude. He wants us to put complaining and murmuring and grumbling out of style. He wants us to be a people who in the midst of the most unfavorable and difficult and challenging circumstances and even in just the irritating ones to turn our murmuring and grumbling into thanksgiving. Before the words leave our lips, let us turn them into thank you, Lord. Again, I'm not being unrealistic. It doesn't mean you never address issues and struggles and problems and try to work through them or improve your situation. You understand what I'm saying. I'm saying overall in our lives to be a balanced people who no matter what's happening, we recognize what we truly have and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And like Paul in that prison, we can say, man, I've learned to be content. I can do all things through Christ, the one who's with me, the one who strengthens me and will always be my lot in life. It's really a a, a realigning, a reorienting, a recalibrating of our understanding, having eternal mindsets rather than temporal ones. And you and I know that there's nothing sweeter than a person who walks in contentedness. So what are the things that make you discontent? Is it your financial status? 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 11, now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Yeah, because there's great gain in contentment. We have food, we have clothing, we're alive. Christ is in us. We experience that great gain no matter what our financial status is. Is it your appearance? that you're discontent about? Psalm 139, 13, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God made you who you are to look exactly the way that you look. I love this by George McDonald. Listen, he said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God is the dearest grandest and most precious thing in all thinking. Do you hear that? He's saying, look, I would rather be exactly who I am and look exactly the way I look than to be the most glorious creature in other people's eyes. Why? Because this translates to the fact that I was thought of in the mind of God and then God made me with his very hands. How beautiful is that? Is it your trials? James 1, 3 Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Even in your trials, God is producing endurance in you. Romans 5, 3 through 4, and not only that, but 
We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Is it even sin and weakness? Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says he's taken your sins, he's nailed them to the cross. Is it sickness? He's gonna give you a new body. There'll be no more sickness or death. Is it possessions? You can store up for yourself treasures in heaven no matter what you've lost on this earth. Is it abandonment? He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always even unto the end of the age. Can a mother forget a nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. See, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Brothers and sisters, no matter what it is, God is there. He even sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, Hebrews 4 tells you. We need to have the heart demonstrated in Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do all things without complaining, and disputes, and it talks about how the world is watching us. We are in that cage, and we can either sing and glorify God, or we can bang against the bars, hurt ourselves, and mar the testimony of the gospel. Fretting it mars, it says, the beauty of many a face. Discontentment spoils all one's world out of whatever window the one looks. A discontented person sees nothing that is not pleasing but contentment instead brings about the greatest joy. I love this poem as I begin to close. As a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot. Always wanting what is not. Isn't that so true? May the Lord change our hearts. I love what J.R. Miller said. He said, discontent never made a rough path smoother, a heavy burden lighter, a bitter cup less bitter, a dark way brighter, or a sorrow less sore. Let me leave you with this final story that I found. Years ago, Russell Conwell told a story about a certain man named Ali Hafid, who owned a very large farm and had orchards, grain fields, and gardens, and was a wealthy, contented man. One day, a wise man from the east told the farmer all about diamonds and how wealthy he would be if he owned a diamond mine. Ali Hafid went to bed that night a poor man, poor because he was discontented. Craving a mine of diamonds, he sold his farm to search for the rare stones. He traveled the world over, finally becoming so poor, broken, and defeated that he committed suicide. One day, the man who purchased Ali Hafid's farm led his camel into the garden to drink. As his camel put its nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sands of the stream. He pulled out a stone that reflected all the hues of the rainbow. The man had discovered the diamond mine of Golconda, the most magnificent mine in all history. Had Ali Hafid remained at home and dug in his own garden, then instead of death in a strange land, he would have had acres of diamonds. Brothers and sisters, may we learn to be content in all things, whether we're abased or whether we abound, because Christ is with us. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power and for its truth. May you help us now, having left Thanksgiving behind, to put Thanksgiving before us as we launch into the end of the year and into the future that lies ahead for us. May you help us to recognize, Lord, that in having you, we have all things. May you help us to stop complaining and murmuring and grumbling 
and become a people who give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as the world watches us. Help us, Lord, to live for your glory. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.